If doctors told us that we'd made a breakthrough on COVID-19, we would rejoice. We'd feel hope that we could live our lives again, get back to work, back to doing what we want. Well, masks are a ticket to that freedom. We can help protect others and save lives by covering our noses and mouths, which is how the virus mainly spreads. Until there's a vaccine, grab the breakthrough that's already here. When we're out, it's masks on. A message to help keep you safe. Brought to you by the Ad Council. When the Arrows play at the Capitol Center, every fan tries to be there. And when the game goes on the road, fans follow the action by listening to Dick Trotter's play-by-play over the Maryland Arrows radio and TV networks. Bruce Arena working into the arrow zone, into the corner against Guy Cody. Spins, looking in front, the pass to John McKenna. McKenna took the shot, and Thomas made a good save on the short side. Bill Bradley looks down four for Suckett. The arrow's leading score plays it off the boards, and front the Blair Cavalry scores! It's summer's most exciting sports bargain. And once you've seen the arrows play, you just can't stay away. Maryland Arrows Pro Lacrosse. Bet you can't watch just one. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations, everybody. This is Tim Hanlon. And of course, you have found, stumbled across, perhaps mistakenly, but hopefully not so, Good Seats Still Available. Yes, it's our curious little podcast that we love to uh, throw out to you each and every week as we uh, explore what used to be in professional sports. Yeah, that's the theme. That's the sort of uh, uh, the zeitgeist of this uh, little show we've been doing almost now, almost four years now. And uh, we uh, welcome you to the proceedings this week. And however you got here, uh, we appreciate it uh, to no end. We are uh, ecstatic to get back into uh, pro lacrosse. Um, You know, there is no sport, there is no league, there is no uh, exploit in professional sports that uh, somehow is no longer with us. Uh, that we don't uh, love to kind of uh, focus on, obsess about, uh, dig into, uh, and we return to various topics as uh, as uh, issues and situations warrant. And this is a great example this week as we welcome back to our microphone Steve Holroyd and Dave Coleman. Uh, you may remember our conversation with them uh, back uh, ways back, episode number ninety two, uh, when they were getting their um, historical lacrosse. Uh, website up and running. It is now called uh, Crosscheck, C-R-O-S-S-E, check, crosscheck.com, formerly known as Retrolax. Uh, And uh, we kind of at that time kind of stumbled into uh, their little world of of history and exploits in what is not sort of uh, obvious to a lot of sort of mainstream sports fans. And that is sort of the uh, the various uh, rich uh, mini histories of uh, the professional game of lacrosse. Uh, in the United States, outdoors, uh, and certainly indoors, too. Um, you may remember our episode number 55 with uh, Russ Klein, uh, one of the co-founders of the Eagle Box Lacrosse League, which essentially uh, began sort of the renaissance of the indoor uh, box lacrosse uh, phenomenon that now uh, resides in today's modern-day National Lacrosse League. But our conversation this week as uh, Messrs. Coleman and Holroyd uh, step up to the microphones in a few moments uh, is uh, a, a deeper dive into this uh, curiosity known as the original National Lacrosse League of 1974 and 1975. Yes, back in the 1970s. And, and we do obsess a lot 
not necessarily on purpose, but just because the 1970s, and yeah, there's a book in here, wink, wink, uh, was perhaps the most fertile uh, garden, if you will, of sports entrepreneurship when it came to pro sports leagues, challengers, uh, for sure. We've talked about the uh, the ABA and the WHA and the World Football. I mean, I don't know, but also sports uh, without sort of direct or legacy uh, challenge, right? The North American Soccer League, for one, um, the International Volleyball Association, uh, World Team Tennis, which we just talked about. But uh, lacrosse was absolutely one of those. Uh, and the National Lacrosse League, circa 74 and 75, um, as we'll hear in our conversation, uh, was kind of new. Well, it was definitely new, right? It was sort of big, big time uh, in arena kind of uh, uh, approach for for this box log game that um, various pockets of the East Coast and certainly uh, in uh, Eastern Canada were very well aware of, but the rest of the country, not so much. But it's also uh, really kind of a, a, a first stab, if you will, at trying to professionalize and, and make a spectacle and a sport uh, with uh, with teams and, and uh, a competition and, and, and action and all that kind of stuff. That, that, that clip that you heard there at the beginning of our little uh, uh, excursion this week uh, is a uh, is a good example. That was uh, from a I guess you can call it a wrap up film of 1974 and a preview of 1975 for one of those teams known as the Maryland Arrows, uh, playing at the old Capitol Center uh, in Landover, Maryland. Uh, for those of you who grew up in the D.C. metro area, remember it's sort of like, a, I guess, a, best described as sort of a giant potato chip. Uh, but that's obviously where the Capitals played and the uh, the old Washington Bullets, now the Washington Wizards, uh, before they moved to, to downtown D.C. Uh, that was kind of the hub of indoor sports in the D.C. metro area. And uh, the Arrows, along with the Philadelphia Wings uh, in the old Spectrum, uh, the Long, Long Island Tomahawks, which played in the 75 season, uh, in the old Nassau, well, it's still actually around Nassau Coliseum, um, Boston Bolts, the Quebec Caribous, uh, Montreal had a team. I mean, there were, you know, there was just a, a Rochester, uh, the Griffins, Syracuse, the Stingers, Toronto had it. I mean, they were, you know, it, there was a, a a real concerted effort. Um, and frankly, uh, uh, various people that we've talked to uh, or hinted at, at the in the past were part of this National uh, Lacrosse League, the original version. Uh, you may remember our episode number 103 with uh, major indoor soccer league co-founder Ed Tepper. Well, Ed was very much part of uh, the beginnings of this league, uh, the Philadelphia Wings in particular, uh, the Philadelphia uh, area spectrum uh, being a hub of all kinds of uh, interesting sports, the Flyers in particular, the 76ers, of course. Um, but as we talked about with Ed uh, back in that episode, uh, the uh, the origin, I guess, of, of the MISL actually uh, has some roots in his interest in lacrosse. And the wings back in the day in this league, the National Lacrosse League. So it's all a very interesting confluence, uh, and it's a uh, a, a wonderful uh, discussion. And for those of you who are even uh, you know either new to lacrosse or sort of don't understand the sport, or perhaps maybe you're a fan, well, this is going to be a very uh, fun episode uh, for you all to uh, to enjoy. And uh, the uh, excuse, frankly, uh, that uh, brings us to uh, to having it is a brand new documentary devoted specifically to. This two-year wonder known as the NLL, the uh, National Lacrosse League, again, the original version, 
no real relation to the current version, but of course, historically, there certainly would be considered to be so. Uh, it's called Two for the Show. You can find it on YouTube, and uh, it, it's great. Uh, it's a lot of uh, memories from uh, various players uh, who were part of that endeavor, uh, the uh, pioneering spirit, of course, uh, as they uh, crafted a new sport, uh, trying to get it to, on a professional level, uh, as well as great footage, uh, some of it, frankly, never seen before. And uh, Messrs. Uh, Dave Coleman and Steve Holroy will tell us all about it, as well as this National Lacrosse League, the original version, uh, in just a few moments' time. Stay tuned for fun and frivolity. Uh, let's see. All right. We know that we've been uh, living in a, a crazy time this year. It's been uh, just a, a nightmare and it continues on a number of different fronts. And we all hope that you're staying safe, staying sane, uh, you're voting, uh, you're just you know being smart about uh, life in general and, uh, and taking care, frankly, of one another, regardless of one's political views or otherwise. Um, but uh, that said, and maybe a little bright uh, silver lining, the holidays are approaching. Now, some people look at that with trepidation and, and holidays and friends and family and stress and all that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, maybe this year it'll be a little bit more uh, enjoyable and uh, appreciated given all that we've been through. And look, we've got for the sports fans in your life, whether that be yourself or others in and around you, um, if you're going to start looking for uh, for great items uh, and you want to probably start shopping now and, and recognize that that shipping is going to take a little longer than it normally did. So uh, I would argue, uh, argue you want to start getting your uh, your sports shopping done earlier rather than later this year. And we've got a whole host of sites uh, to uh, recommend to you. We're not going to go into, into depth right this moment, but uh, fans of the show will know or probably understand uh, the zeitgeists behind all of these great sponsors of ours. Uh, but we encourage you to check all of them out, and we're going to give you some promo codes too. So get ready. Get your paper and, paper and pencil ready because here we go. 417helmets.com. 417helmets.com. Our pal Judd Lasher in Metropolitan St. Louis, I believe it is. Collectible helmets and more. Really cool stuff, including custom-made mini helmets. Uh, Judd made a really cool one for me featuring the, the uh, fancy New York Cosmos logo. Uh, they can do all kinds of great stuff as well as great memories of various leagues and teams. Promo code at 417helmets.com. Good seats. That's 10% off uh, all your purchases there. How about 503 Sports, the king of throwbacks? 503-sports.com. That's our pal Dustin Alameda in, in the Portland, Oregon uh, metropolitan area. And we've got a promo code for you there, and that's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, SEATS, 10% off all of your purchases, uh, including great custom-made jerseys, among all kinds of other stuff. That's 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. How about oldschoolshirts.com? Of course, that's P.F. Wilson and his uh, friends in the metropolitan Cincinnati area. Ooh, great uh, shirts, uh, not just of sports, but all kinds of great pop culture stuff, just like the, the, the name implies, Old School Shirts. Dot com, all one word. And the promo code for you there for 10% off is Good Seats. Good Seats is the promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com, 10% off. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, our pal Dean Mitchell in San Diego. <laughs> Another great location uh, we wouldn't mind being in uh, at, this, at this moment as winter approaches here in the Chicago area. But I digress. Promo code there is Good Seats. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, promo code Good Seats for 15% off all of your purchases there. Great memorabilia. It's better than eBay. Trust me. And last but not least, our pals at StreakerSports.com. StreakerSports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Uh, uh, just not only old 
leagues and teams and stuff, but just amazing, cool pop culture, sports infused themed uh, garb and uh, wear. And it's just fantastic stuff. Streakersports.com promo code there is good seats and you will get 15% off all of your purchases there. So check them out, all of them. And uh, order now, order uh, early and often, and uh, we appreciate all of them to no end for their sponsorship of the show and hopefully a few great items for uh, your friends, your family, the sports fans in your life, uh, and look, maybe a few items for yourself too. Wink, wink. Um, all right. So that's uh, that's the commerce section of our broadcast today. Uh, let's get into our chat now with the guys around lacrosse. Here it goes. It's Steve Holroyd and Dave Coleman. Let's talk National Lacrosse League, the original version. Let's dial it back to the mid-70s. Here's our conversation. Please enjoy. You know, lacrosse is always something that's uh, uh, endlessly intriguing because uh, like some of the other topics that we've uh, done on this show, uh, world team tennis being one of them, right? There, there's just not as much uh, attention paid, it seems, on the historical level for whatever reasons. Um, but, but fascinating stories nonetheless, and arguably a lot to uh, unearth and, and to sort of discover. And you guys, um, and I'll let you guys sort of describe uh, your uh, your adjunct to the sport in a second, but. Um, you know, I think a lot of people sort of uh, know indoor lacrosse or box lacrosse or however they choose to call it, uh, sort of in its modern form that what's called now the National Lacrosse League. But uh, you guys decided to focus on, frankly, I think something, um, you know, in the world of the 1970s, right, which was if you were going to pick a decade uh, in modern times to sort of like uh, really hyper analyze like, you know, challenger leagues and, and creativity and entrepreneurism in, in sports, entrepreneurialism. Um, the National Lacrosse League, the two-year experiment from 74 through 75, right, was probably uh, not as uh, well-known, perhaps, as some of the other ones that we've, uh, we've focused on. So one, uh, in there is a question, which is, uh, give us a, a little bit of background from both of your perspectives, as, especially your adjunct into the sport of lacrosse and this particular topic. When we reintroduced this venture, because I had NOL lacrosse back in 98, which turned into Lax TV in 2006. By 2011, I had taken a break, and I came back to Facebook in 2017. And it's like Steve was writing about box lacrosse history and whatnot, and it's like I talked to him, and he came on board. And it's like there wasn't too much going on as far as the history of the 74-75 league, let alone the major indoor lacrosse league, which ran from 87 to 97. And there was story after story that we came across that needed to be shared, needed to be told from a player standpoint, from a franchise standpoint, from a history standpoint, that over the course of the last two years, three years, while well, we started in Thanksgiving in 2018, but over the course of the last two years, it's just become a cultural phenomenon for us. We just sit back and we take a look, and it's just amazing how many people have responded, have interacted with us throughout the course of uh, since we've been up, and the film is just a complement to the fan perspective and the player perspective 
from the 74-75 leg. But Dave, you you come at this more from sort of a, I guess, a, for lack of a better term, a super fan perspective, right? You, you didn't have any involvement with the league per se, or you weren't a player, or, or, or maybe were you, or was there any other sort of formal relationship that you had with this league back in the day? When I started my first website back in nine, 1994, it was called South Jersey Sports World. Because the Philadelphia sports media back then, all they cared about was the Phillies, the Eagles, the Flyers, and the 76ers. The Philadelphia Wings were on their third straight championship run back in the major indoor league. They won it in 89-90. They lost to Buffalo in 92-93. And I covered indoor lacrosse, among other things. And I was on the phone with the league offices two, three times a month just to get a scoop, this and that. That's how I built a friendship with Chris Fritz more than Russ Klein. But I know them both. I was friends with them both. And once the Wings went to the National Lacrosse League after all that went down, I'd done some PR, marketing, advertising work with the Wings off and on. Uh, I put together the uh, 2004 Wings Reunion. And there was like 15 players that came from the old 74, 75 teams down to Philadelphia for that night. But it's like, I've, I've had a, I've had an interaction with them, you know, like, you know, John Grant that night, he took a look around and he looked at me because I've never met a fan that had a bunch of groupies before. <laughs> and we still to this day laugh about that. And, and I guess you're hinting and, and we'll segue to Steve's uh, background and entree too, is that, because lacrosse has become, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but lacrosse is obviously a much more uh, entrenched and, and dare I say, approaching sort of mainstream, at least at, certainly at the collegiate and uh, at high school level, and it, the staying power of it in its various forms in the professional uh, circuits uh, is, I, and I'm guessing this is a theme here, right? It, it brings up uh, things like, what is the history of this? How did, what is this thing? How did it get here? Why are we doing this? And it sort of is a bit of a, I don't know, a head scratching kind of like, well, what came before all of this? And, and, and why is it the way it is at this point? Now, and of course, lacrosse, right? Probably the deepest and richest, uh, 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 perhaps of histories of, of sports anywhere, right? Uh, because of its uh, Native American uh, roots and all. That is true. And when, you know, like when me and Steve started interacting on this project two years ago, Steve stayed away from what I was doing. I concentrated on the 74-75 league and the major indoor league. And Steve went from that point on back. And he'll elaborate on that, you know, like the National Lacrosse Association of 68. And then there was tries back in the 30s and in the 20s and it, it, it he uncovered quite a bit that led up to the 74 leg which so steve, led up go yeah, ahead yeah. so steve you're you're more from a, you're obviously a more of a, an armchair historian for lots of different sports but but lacrosse seems to be kind of front and center in your mind of, of late it would seem right that's correct i mean and it's, it's funny as the uh Academics have pushed me out of soccer history. The term is public historian now, not armchair. Uh, excuse us. But now in all, in all seriousness, you're right. And, and it goes to something you were hinting to earlier. I mean, when you, there's a, lacrosse really does appear to be teed up to be the next big thing, at least as a professional sport. 
and Tim, you and I have a better feeling for this. Where have we heard this before? Oh, could be soccer in the eighties. And from my dive in soccer way back when, the thing that disappointed me most was the lost opportunity in the sense that, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, people started to try to write about American soccer history. And while they were doing that, they had resources who were alive and could have told you about the original American soccer league of the 1920s. And their stories were being literally poo-pooed as myths. Oh, there was no league back then. The American Soccer League started in 1933. Just look at their media guide. What? Soccer war? What are you talking about? And then those folks passed away, and that opportunity was lost. As, as I said, as lacrosse is teed up to be the next big thing, and like you had said at the very start here, there was a pretty well-publicized attempt at professional lacrosse in the 70s, 74 and 75. Touched a lot of people's lives. Uh, was a was a key element in uh, enabling the current version we're enjoying today to come back. But and there were stories out there, uh, but no one was documenting them. And even without talking to me yet, because he had started this part a little before he and I connected, Dave recognized the importance of hey, there's folks out there who have stories to tell, but these are stories that are now forty. And in some cases, you know, 50 some years old, when you go back to the 1968 league, David referenced, we, we have to get their stories down. People need to know what came before so they can really appreciate what they have now. And so when, when the idea of, hey, let's take these oral uh, reminiscences, point a term, I don't think that's a word, but we take these oral histories and let's and present them with the video, with the, with the visuals that are out there but are also in danger of being lost because um, as, as we've seen time and time again, whether it's the North American soccer league, the world football league, as you'll find out to a point, the original world team tennis, when these leagues fold, they, they don't preserve their history. They're out of business uh, and, and historical documentation and film disappears. Dave was jumping on the opportunity. I could find this stuff. It's out there. I will get it. I'll collect it together. And, yeah, we could just throw it together in a in a in a long form video with rock music in the background, but that's a, that, that's a real waste of the resource. Let's use this to supplement the real story, which is the stories of the stars who toiled away in that league, um, creating what was, I guess, initially like a cult that has now grown into a mainstream sport, and and as we keep returning to, and is teed up to be the next big thing in the United States. Yeah, I mean, these things in, in the fringes, at least in the realm of sports, uh, let's just keep it at guardrail to that, right? Uh, they start start kind of at the edges of things and, and inventiveness and creativity. And, you know, sometimes they, they just, they don't, they fail for whatever reasons, but but then, you know, there's a, a generation or half of a generation or, or others that kind of, you know, try to pick around and say, okay, well, what went wrong with it? And maybe we can sort of make it to, to the next level. So, I, look, I like the term oral reminiscences because yeah. I think you're absolutely right because, you know, whether it's, you know, classically uh, trained uh, research, and, and frankly, Steve, you know, all you need is a, a master's degree or a PhD in, in uh, historical studies or whatever just to you know, get your, uh, your bona fides, I guess, to reenter the, uh, the uh, official world of, uh, of, of archivists and uh, and historians, but uh, but regardless, right? A lot of this stuff, I think you're hinting at, is these are I wouldn't call them informal, but maybe right. They're not sort of 
it's not sort of a, a dive into the old microfiches per se, because there isn't a lot of microfiche for this kind of stuff. And you really do have to dig and get to personal papers and, and memories and conversations and uh, people remembering they've got stuff in the attic when a family member passes away or whatever, right? And that's when this stuff gets unearthed and frankly, revisited. And I think that's kind of where maybe this is kind of a story. And I, I, so, so this film, though, it's interesting. A lot of big part of the thread of it kind of centers around a reunion. Uh, maybe, Dave, you want to kind of maybe discuss sort of that because it feels to me it's almost like, a, I'm going to call it a centerpiece, but it almost kind of is the, you know, starting at the today to go back, but the today is full of what was going on back in the day. And, and it, it seems to me like a lot of these guys um, uh, were very close or, or uh, it was really easy to get them to remember how close that they were. And to this day, they still are. Uh, John Amos, who starred on Good Times back in the late 70s, coined a phrase that really stuck to me through the course of my life. And it was he basically said, how do you know where I'm going if you don't know where I've been? You know what I mean? And these guys, they had a reunion that, for better or for worse, I couldn't attend last year up in uh, Ontario. And there was over 100 players and coaches that attended this. It was an outdoor function. Duffy McCarthy, who played for Toronto in 74 and Boston in 75, hosted the event. And there is a spirit and a kindership between all these guys. They beat the hell out of each other. They played against each other. They grew up together. They played on teams together. You know, and it's just like there's a bond there. And don't, throughout the course of – I started the film back in February of 2019, and I did a series of phone interviews with John Grant Sr., Duffy McCarthy, Pat Differ, who played for Syracuse and Quebec, uh, the Philadelphia connection with Grant, Jimmy Wasson, Carm Collins, Larry Lloyd, and the list went on and on. There was nine altogether, Dale McKenzie from Montreal. And it's it was just like you sit back and you just throw players' names out there. You throw instances out there, and you just let them go. And just to hear them talk and relive those times in 74, 75, it was just, it, I was just awestruck because these guys don't have to take five seconds of their life to give to me. You know what I mean? They got their lives going on. They got their families going on. And just to sit here and to listen to these guys talk about their playing days, it was just a phenomenal thing for me to relive over and over and over again it was it was just a great thing and the film isn't necessarily about me or steve or crosscheck or the website it's about them and what they've brought to the table what they sacrificed in order to make it happen and it's a damn shame that it only lasted two years but it was like they were the uh, forefathers of what we've got today and i'm proud to know the majority of them, and I thank each and every one of them for taking their time and the collections that have been brought to us. Uh, Jim Bishop's collect. Jim Bishop, he was legendary in box lacrosse up in Canada. He had five, six straight Minnow Cup championships with Oshawa. And Larry Lloyd, he was an integral part of getting us 
not only Jim's collection, but his as well from his playing days with Oshawa, with Philadelphia. Um, and there's just more and more that came to the table and it all came together for a better, you know, for better phrase of it. It just, it, it just meshed. And, and the one thing, if I could cut in, and the one thing that really impressed me, and again, this is drawing all my soccer experiences, is like Dave said, these guys are really close. They stayed together. But this one thing that really struck me was that they're, they're, they're not only really proud of what they've done, they, they were proud of what they, what they did to make the National Lacrosse League a success. And in, 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 in many ways it was in 74 and 75, notwithstanding the fact that it didn't survive. Um, the fact, they're very proud of the fact they made professional box lacrosse uh, something that was viable because, again, in Canada, kind of like what you see here in America with field lacrosse. In Canada, they love amateur box lacrosse, and they look kind of skeptically at the pro game, not unlike football and basketball was here in the 20s and 30s. These guys are proud of the fact that they they helped to make professional lacrosse a thing, which is why it continues to be a thing. But the other thing I found that was so much different than than the, the soccer group was they were not only proud of what they did, as opposed to when you talk to like American soccer players of the era, they're almost embarrassed because they really didn't contribute that much to it, you know, but they're also um, so appreciative of the fact that they are remembered and want to be remembered where again, with some of these other groups, they can't be bothered other, other sports and other athletes. Oh, I did my time. Leave me alone. It wasn't that big a deal. No, they, they, their love of the game is such that, they're proud of what they contributed to it and, 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 and they, and they appreciate being remembered. And that made this, uh, I mean, again, my involvement with the film wasn't anywhere near as great as Dave's. This was his baby, but that sense that they brought that, Hey, this is, we, we, this is great that you want to tell the story and we want to help you tell it because it needs to be told made it such a, such a much more satisfying experience. than frankly, anything I've encountered in my previous sports history uh, bits of work, and, and it really made it a labor of love. Well, Steve, why don't you why don't you uh, set the table for us? So, so take us back to the early seventies, and and kind of give us sort of uh, maybe the, uh, uh, I guess the the foundational components that were sort of rattling around that uh, birthed this league in seventy four. Um, I don't know. We have to go too deep into sort of all the the history of the sport of lacrosse per se, right? But I I'm just curious as to sort of what what do you think were the I guess uh, 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 catalytic ingredients. Uh, what was going on in 73 or so, and how did sort of this idea of a pro indoor box law uh, league come about? Well, to answer that, I, I, won't, I don't have to go all the way back to 1932, but it, it, it starts with a gentleman whose name Dave has already mentioned. That's Jim Bishop. Jim Bishop, he's kind of the father of modern box lacrosse. Uh, when he, he started a club team called the Oshawa Green Gales in the 40s, and long story short, implemented a lot of basketball concepts into box lacrosse, the fast break, the pick and roll, and things like that, that served to revolutionize the game. And again, he had this, uh, this uh, his minor, uh, his, his junior team had won ultimately seven Minto Cups in a row, un- unheard of. He believed in the game and he wanted to go professional. And he had a kindred spirit in the form of an advertising executive named Morley Kells, who had formed a men's level 
box lacrosse team in the Toronto area that he called the Toronto Maple Leafs. And the two of them decided to, to ride the 60s sports explosion. You know, we had the AFL and the ABA and, and, the, and the World Hockey Association was coming. Uh, in 1968, they said, hey, now's a good time. Uh, let, let's get these NHL guys involved. They need to fill their arenas in the summertime anyway. And they formed the National Lacrosse Association. And it had involvement from the Toronto Maple Leafs, Detroit Red Wings, Montreal Canadiens. And it was one and done in one year. But for but it wasn't for reasons – it wasn't that the sport didn't sell. A lot of it was this Canadian bias against professional box lacrosse. A lot of it was just logistics. But it came and went in one year. But Bishop and Kells didn't give up on the dream. And so they kept trying to plant the seeds – in 69, they tried something that didn't work. In 72, they tried to rebrand a National League and call it National Lacrosse League. It really didn't work. But what, what really prompted it was getting American interest. And that happened in 1973 when a gentleman named Dan Snyder out of Baltimore, but not the guy who owns the Redskins, uh, sorry, the Washington football team now, he, stayed, he also believed in, in, in the possibility of box lacrosse as a professional game, staged a series of exhibitions that summer, summer of 73, with the help of Morley Kells, um, moderately successful. Well, I'm uh, sorry, where were those exhibitions? Do you know? Uh, yeah, largely, there was a couple games played in Canada, but largely in Baltimore. I think there was two games played in the Baltimore area. And, and Baltimore, uh, it was, it, because why, for those who kind of don't yeah, know? For those who don't know, Baltimore is uh, is probably the field lacrosse capital of the United States. With all due respect to Long Island, uh, it's it's the epicenter. You know, there's Johns Hopkins, Maryland University. It, it's uh, it's the field lacrosse capital, and and, uh, and so that's why Dan Snyder thought it would be a good idea to try this out. And crowds liked what they saw. Players, American players in particular, were horrified by what they saw. But, uh, but the, the fans liked it. But essentially, Kells, who was involved in helping Dan Snyder do this, he just used it as, an, as a way to, again, reach out to his NHL contacts, reach out to Jim Bishop, who had retained a connection with the Detroit Red Wings, and finally say, look, the time is right. It's, uh, you know, the, there was a second sports explosion in the 70s. You saw the World Football League. You saw the North American Soccer League finally expanding. You saw World Team Tennis was starting. There were, believe it or not, there was uh, a, someone was trying to start World Team Boxing. Someone was trying to do a third baseball league. I mean, it was yeah, a time. volleyball, it, so I mean, on and on and on. That's right? right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so he was able to convince uh, the the uh, Bruce Norris with the Red Wings to get back involved. He was able to convince uh, the Knox brothers in Buffalo uh, to, to get NHL people involved again. And so that was what was the foundation for the, the that, that's what those were the moving parts that finally came together and brought us the National Lacrosse League in 1974. All right, before we go further on that, though, so uh, there are a couple, two, two things that I just want to just pick at. Well, number one is, is and it's a theme we've heard elsewhere, too, right, is the idea of uh, filling the arenas, uh, aligning with, say, another sport that's already established, maybe has some infrastructure, uh, i.e., in this case, the, uh, uh, the uh, NHL. Uh, but then also, too, I think maybe it's also important maybe to just to surface this, I, I call it friction, but certainly difference between the field lacrosse game and the box lacrosse game. because. I think you're sort of hinting at it a little bit, right? There is a, uh, I don't know, a purist's debate perhaps and, and uh, around sort of the, what this game is because some of this sounds hauntingly familiar to 
the advent of indoor soccer, right? It's a bastardization, if you disagree, or it's a better, more American version of, if you agree. Um, is that sort of a, a, a metaphor or, or a, a parallel that uh, makes sense here? It makes sense, but only in the United States, because the interesting thing is when box lacrosse was invented in 1931, and it was, it was invented out of whole cloth. There was no evolution or anything. And I'm sorry, was that because of the sort of winter, how do we stay fresh and can we bring our love of this lacrosse game indoors? Is that kind of the basis of it? No, it, it, it field lacrosse at all, because again, Canada had field lacrosse. No, frankly, in 1931, it was the same motivations that brought it about in 74. Hockey teams wanted to fill their rinks in the summertime. Um, so the sport that was already being played outside came inside because the arena owners wanted it there. But Canada took to this newer version of the game like a duck to water. They loved it right away. And field, and literally almost, almost overnight, field lacrosse ceased being a thing. When they talk about lacrosse being the national sport of Canada, they're talking about box lacrosse. Here in the United States, we are much more familiar with the field game. So, and we think that's lacrosse. Um, so in America, yeah, that, that at least among fans, to, uh, to the extent the National Lacrosse League was counting on field lacrosse, uh, uh, a field lacrosse fan base to embrace the game. That's why they put a team in Maryland in, uh, with the Maryland Arrows. Uh, they were uh, when they went to Long Island in 1975 with the Tomahawks. They were surprised that field lacrosse people wouldn't embrace the game. And yeah, I think that goes to what you were talking about. Same thing with indoor soccer. Purists wouldn't watch indoor soccer, but the casual fan, which is what Dave and I both would have been in '74, because we didn't grow up in lacrosse playing communities. We hadn't held. We, uh, we we didn't come from those Tony kind of areas that had that. We just saw a game that looked really great. And so, uh, but, but the problem was with players. The NLL was largely Canadian, and Dave will get into that. Uh, and, the, and the American players who tried it, either they were horrified by what they saw, or in the case of folks like Bruce Arena, loved it. They thought it was superior to the field game and, and, and wished it had lasted. So, but no, it's, it wasn't so much a purist. I guess it wasn't so much purist versus uh, people who were being innovative as it was literally America versus Canada. They are two very different games. And it's the same reason why, you know, with field lacrosse, you think, oh, you know, the, the Premier Lacrosse League or Major League Lacrosse, why aren't they putting teams in Canada? Well, MLL tried, and it died on the vine. Canadians couldn't care less about field lacrosse in the, in the same way that American lacrosse fans are a really hard sell to get to embrace box lacrosse. But that's not held the sport back because casual fans love the sport. So, Dave, that sounds to me like it's a, a combination, I guess, when, when going to market with this league, uh, that it's sort of a, a – a, a, if you're in the marketing chair of, of this enterprise, right, you're trying to somehow appeal – well, you've got a couple of different angles. One, this the Canadian approach, the fan uh, interest, as well as the U.S., which is clearly different, as Steve has just outlined. But it's also sort of this – uh, lacrosse enthusiast or, or uh, intelligentsia, so we say, uh, uh, with the sort of more, I don't know, general uh, uninitiated sports fan. Um, so that seems like an interesting dichotomy to go to market with uh, when, you know, it, you're trying to satisfy a number of different issues all simultaneously. Yeah, you're right. Uh, being 
13 years old and being introduced to the game locally on TV, I, I can remember coming home from uh, basketball, uh, from baseball practice, and it was like the Wings' first game was on TV, and I changed. I said, Dad, I got to change the channel. I want you to look at something. And my dad just like, you know, what is this? And I explained it to him. And he was drawn to the game just for the mere fact of the violent nature of the game. Talking to the other players, it's like you come down the middle with the ball and you get hit with a a wooden lacrosse stick across your wrist, your arms, just at the whole nine yards. It'll make you second guess about coming down the middle again. That is the truth. My mom, she loved the fact that these guys were wearing pads and shorts. <laughs> there was a, there was an appeal there was an appeal that you know the newness of the game the flow of the game it, it was just you know it was something new that has never been I've never seen before and it, that's what attracted me my dad was attracted for the physicality of it my mom was you know and she was she had her own reasons but it's like there was something about the game that appealed it, it, you know like one man's trash is another man's cash. You can look at it. Steve can look at it. I can look at it. And we all have different reasons for why we were attracted to the game then and now. You know what I mean? And, and yeah, but and, and interestingly, it made for a really, uh, I, I think, go, go on what, what Tim was asking, it, 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 there was a lot of ingredients that made it difficult because that violence thing was very much what was selling in the 70s. I mean, hockey had embraced it fully. You know, Slapshot was coming out. Um, and, and so the people who wanted to make money wanted to market the violence. Um, you saw with the early NLL ads, you know, it was, it was the sport of Tilla the Hun and Ivan the Terrible were too afraid to play because it was so rough. But underneath it all, it was a genuine sport. I mean, violence is a component. But it was, uh, I think Dave used the phrase when we were on your show the last time, you know, it was like ballet on the boards. I mean, there was a real art to the game itself. And you had a guy like Jim Bishop who truly believed in the game. He wasn't a huckster just trying to make a buck saying, Hey, let's, let's make it, let's, let's you know, market the violence. You, know, you had the box lacrosse people who truly believe this is one of the greatest games ever because it had so many elements. It had the speed of hockey, the tactics of basketball, the, the violence of, of hockey and, and football and, and put it all together. It's a great game. And then you had the, the, the people who wanted to make money. They were either the hockey guys who said, look, we don't care what it is. It could be 10. As long as we're selling out dates in the summertime, that's great. It eases my overhead. And then you had the other investors um, who said, hey, look, no, it's violent. People come for violence. Uh, let's market the violence. Um, and you're trying to, out of that stew, nevertheless present a sport that's not going to be immediately ridiculed as up that's roller derby or uh, you know the kind of response that it actually got in the 30s when it was invented oh this has got to be fake like wrestling no one can survive such a beating you know you, you don't want that perception this is an actual sport yeah it's a little rough it's even rougher than hockey but no come for the art yeah, it was it was tough taking all those elements trying to present it in one cohesive whole and, and get people to sign up. And, and as again, and again, going back to what we talked about, you weren't always successful because field across people were offended by the sport as a whole. Um, 
some box lacrosse people were bothered by some of the rule changes, uh, although the NLL didn't do that so much. I'm, I, I'm getting the MILL, and we're not going to talk about that today. But uh, they saw all oh, some of the changes. Oh, they're going to put it on AstroTurf instead of plywood. Oh, and, you know, every some people worked really hard to find reasons to turn their nose at it. Again, professionalism being the biggest reason of all, but notwithstanding all that. And I think this is part of the story that shouldn't be lost, and, and Dave covers it beautifully in the film, is that the league was actually very successful, as opposed to, say, World Team Tennis or International Volleyball, although even that league was kind of a victim of circumstance as well. Um, the NLL didn't die because it was unsuccessful. It died because the timing couldn't have been worse. And, and to a man, I mean, not to sort of spoil the, the ending or whatever, but to a man, everyone said if they managed to get through 76, which and, and the problems in 76 were more logistical than financial, if they managed to get through that, that version would still be here today. And, and, and you don't hear other failed sports say that. So, again, even with all those competing elements that I just described as long-windedly as possible, they were successful. They came up with a whole that touched people. It may not have touched the people they thought they were going to reach, but it, it, it created a real fan base, initially a cult, that I think we're finally seeing a couple of generations later growing into something that is on the verge of being uh, you know, the, the, the next great national sport. Well, des- describe to me the, the, um, uh, the construct of this, how it got to market, how it was marketed. I mean, we're not talking a ton of teams here. Uh, you're hinting at the fact that uh, it was kind of, uh, shall we say, regionally aware of its at least initial uh, market uh, appeal. Um, but maybe you can kind of get some of the, um, uh, the mechanics and or the uh, sort of the framework of this league. Uh, you know, this we're talking about sort of the late spring, early summer of 74 to launch it. Um, maybe a little bit of background as to uh, some of the folks that you mentioned and, and how it sort of came to be literally the process of birthing it, shall we say, going to market? Well, you know, the birthing part, I think we covered. It was basically Bishop and Kells uh, saw the time was right, given the uh, fairly positive response in American cities to the Snyder tour of 73, which even though the tour was just a couple of um, uh, games in Baltimore, uh, the, the, the response was such as, okay, we can do this. And then it was, it, it was, it was, not unlike what you saw years later with the MISL, let's go to the arena owners. Hey, would you like to fill dates? Here's a sport. And they said, sure. And at that point, I mean, that, that, was, that was fairly easy. I mean, once you got NHL owners and arena owners to say, yeah, sure, we'll back this venture, um, uh, come on in, uh, that was easy because it, it, you, you had players. I mean, again, it was the National Sport of Canada you had plenty of available players to fill these teams. You, you, there's the, there was the two hotbeds, British Columbia and Ontario. Uh, British Columbia had, had a longstanding 14 league, the, the, the uh, uh, Western, uh, Western lacrosse uh, league that, um, uh, that, 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 that plenty of players, Ontario had players. So once they, once they had barns willing to accommodate teams, it was simple. Now, what I'll let Dave talk about, because it's closer to home, and it's interesting because it was the one team that was not only not in a traditional lacrosse hotbed, because the other places, okay, we'll put a team in Montreal, put a team in Toronto, we'll, t- we'll put teams in Syracuse and Rochester, which, although they were Canadian, uh, although they were American cities, they had a box lacrosse tradition 
because they were so close to the border. Um, Philadelphia had no lacrosse history whatsoever and also were one of the few teams that didn't have direct NHL involvement and yet wound up being the most successful of the teams in that league. And Dave, why don't you take it from there? The Philadelphia story was an interesting one because Ed Tepper, who owned the, who owned the Wings back in 74, was offered the team from uh, Ed Snyder, who owned the Philadelphia Flyers. They approached Snyder first and offered him, you know, the same basic setup during the summer, filling the seats at the Spectrum and whatnot. And Snyder got a hold of Ed Tepper and basically asked Ed if he would be interested because he had, you know, Snyder had too many other things going on. And, and, Ed, uh, and Ed Tepper, for those who don't know, was and is whom? For, is, besides being a former guest on the show, of course. <laughs> uh, well, he was uh, one of the two founders of the major indoor soccer league after the uh, National Lacrosse League folded shop in 76. And prior, but prior, what, was, what was this deal? Real estate? I forget where he made his he, money. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. Yeah. He was a real estate investor and developer. And um, the family is still in the real estate business to this day. And uh, with the Philadelphia market, they had every home game for both years televised. So the marketing aspect of it was a, a no-brainer. I mean, you know, they, they flooded the market with uh, advertising. Uh, the news media supported the team very well uh, through research for both the NOL and the MILL. There were more stories that I've uncovered, Steve's uncovered, about the 74-75 league than the major indoor lacrosse league would ever think about. Yeah. It was just branded that way. It, I mean, you know, Toronto, Montreal, Syracuse, Rochester, Maryland, Philadelphia, and then Boston and Long Island in 75. It, 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 was, just, uh, it was just a great – that Philadelphia had their act together when it came to the marketing of the team. Why Philly, though, versus, say, another market or two, uh, you know, as the, I don't know, the non-traditional market, so to speak? Well, uh, I, I, th I, I think Philly uh, it was, was great at riding the zeitgeist because they brought in really talented players. I mean, basically, they brought in everybody from Peterborough, I mean, which was one of the great lacrosse hotbeds in Ontario. But... They, they were happy to they, they were happy to to ride the Flyers' coattails as best they could, including and I'm, I'm jumping. I have to say it's in my contract. I get to say this, and then Dave follows up, including the Wings signed a former Flyer named Doug Favell, who was their goaltender before Perron, before the Cup years, to play for them on the Wings. Now Favell, Favell happened to be an extremely talented lacrosse player, but. You know, they, they, they realized part of the marketing, we're going to not only market it, it's a tough game, um, but hey, let's, let's, let's bring in this Flyers connection too. And uh, yeah, so, people, so I think people came for the violence, but, and, and Dave's got a much more, uh, he was a little older than I was. He's got a much better memory of this. Yeah, but they came for, they marketed as come for the violence, but stay for the game. And that's exactly what happened. Isn't that right? Their first game, oddly enough, and in the film, 
John Grant, Carm Collins, and John, the legend John Davis from Montreal touched on this. Here you have the Flyers winning the Stanley Cup in the afternoon, May 19th of 74. The Wings home opener, matter of fact, the, league's, the league opened that weekend. Toronto opened in Montreal the night before, and then Montreal came to Philadelphia <laughs> the following night, and it was like utter chaos after the Flyers won the Stanley Cup. Fans were doing their own parades around the spectrum, South Philadelphia. I mean, it was a mob scene. And John Grant alluded to the fact that, you know, they were at the hotel, they took cabs and whatnot to try to get close to the spectrum. They had to walk over a mile just to get into the spectrum. And when the Montreal bus rolled up to park, everybody thought it was the Boston Bruins bus that was leaving, and they started rocking the bus. <laughs> and they were just, and it was the Flyers that went in the Stanley Cup. Steve was right. I mean, they, the Wings just followed suit with the Flyers, and it was like the Broad Street Bullies second edition, only they're carrying sticks with nets, and there's, they could, they're allowed to use them and this and that. The game was sold out, and Carm Collins had said that only it, it was reported 12,871 were able to get into the game to watch it. It was sold out. You had 17,000 tickets sold but only close to 13,000 were able to get into the game because of the uh, Stanley Cup fervor afterwards. So it, it's cl- it sounds like they they really sort of early on the Wings organization sort of figured out that there is a an overlap here between the hockey fan and and obviously what a great per, uh pinnacle or perch to kind of launch something right because you you've got you have the white hot spotlight from winning an NHL championship but i guess they i, I guess i from an outsider's perspective, it looks like, okay, well, all right, they're, they're both sort of jointly owned and or operated or infrastructurally supported, uh, but they're two different sports, two different seasons. How do you necessarily, I mean, it sounds like they did a really good job of trying to draft the, uh, off of an NHL halo, both in terms of the game as well as its, the team's uh, success that year, into this other thing somehow to keep, you know, either uh, embers of the Flyers uh, stuff that just occurred and, and into, into the next season, but also this new thing that's, uh, shall we say, Flyers endorsed. Yeah, and, 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 and the fact that they were winning helped. I mean, it's remarkable if you think about it. If you remember the time, it's 1974. Not only are the Wings a brand-new team marketing a brand-new sport, but the presence of Doug Favell notwithstanding, they're doing it with no real star power meanwhile there's one other new league starting up at the same time world team tennis and in philadelphia they have billy jean king probably the biggest name in tennis at the time uh, at the meanwhile also meanwhile there's a new football league that's going to start in the late summer the philadelphia bell um you know and football being football there's a real competitor um the philadelphia adams are still burning white hot Right, falling off their improbable 1973 title. They're still getting big crowds to Spectrum in 74. Um, and, of course, you've always had the Phillies. I mean, it's, a, it's an extremely crowded sports market. And yet uh, the Wings, you know, more so than any other team before or since, has tried to enter this market cold, if you will. 
did a Trump, did a fabulous job. And I, and it was a, it was a common, like I said, the zeitgeist. It was a combination of the violence. It was a violent time. You know, the, the story even then as now was that the Flyers bullied their way to the cup, which is really unfair to like the three Hall of Famers and many All-Stars that were on that team. But that was the perception. And here's another team doing the same thing. But also, even though we don't know any of these guys, they're good, but they were also very personable. I mean, one thing we didn't touch into the film because it was already two hours long and, and you know, it'll be 10 if we wanted to tell every story you wanted to tell. But, you know, I have friends who were season ticket holders with that original team uh, of the original team. And they talked about hanging out the bar after the games, you know, the player, Ova- I think the club was ovations in the spectrum. Right. And, 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 and the players would show up and the fans would show up and they'd hang out. Uh, there, there was a real connection. Again, these a bunch of kids from Peterborough, Canada, I mean, the Philadelphia uh, were, were openly embraced by the fans, and they embraced the fans back. It really was something special in Philadelphia that you, you, know, you didn't see in Toronto or Montreal because they were older, experienced, and for want of a better phrase, more cynical across markets. Same thing with Ro- Rochester and Syracuse. You know, Baltimore, while the arrows were drawing fairly well, the lacrosse community, the field lacrosse community, continued to turn their nose up at this sport. Philadelphia was the one place where everything came together just right. And, and that's why, again, even with the current NLL and the current version of the Wings, we're still, we're still talking about that original group because it was truly magic. I mean, as much as that's a cliche, it was magic. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it does seem to me like it is, it's almost a cleaner slate, if you will, to market something with, uh, without sort of encumbrances, but which is also ironic because, you know, here's a sport that's obviously got passionate pockets and obviously the markets that were originally chosen, right, are trying to be deferential to that because that's probably the first place you're going to get, at least get some semblance of an audience to start with versus completely, you know, landing a brand new sport that nobody's ever seen before from, you know, from another planet, right? Um, so that, but it's interesting though, and it's also no mistake, for example, that the, the wings colors were very similar, if not exactly the same of that of the flyers, right? So it seems like there were some synergies from the marketing side of saying, so, but, okay, but, but this doesn't seem to me like a story as, so it, I would imagine, okay, that the Flyers uh, backed uh, push and success, if you will, of what was going on with the wings um, gave the league and the players and everybody involved uh, a, a model of hope and or of success. I, I guess the question really is, so as the wings went, so went the league or not? And it seems like it kind of went not. I mean, you were, for example, hinting at media coverage. It seems to me like the wings were kind of the model franchise when it came to uh, radio, I think, and TV. Uh, but it didn't seem to be the, the model that others were, were uh, exercising uh, in, in their first go-arounds. From what I've learned going through – endless hours of research. Philadelphia was the market. They were the biggest market. The media was second to none as far as compared to the other cities at the time. I mean, not taking anything away from Toronto. Toronto televised their games also in 74, every home game. Uh, Montreal, not really, believe it or not. Rochester and Syracuse, along with Maryland, they didn't televise either. Maryland had a radio presence. Uh, 
Rochester, Syracuse, Montreal? I'm not really sure because I haven't found any evidence to support that. The Toronto media, the Montreal media, as I said, the newspapers in all six locations supported the National Lacrosse League. There was no doubt about it. But Philadelphia, they were the biggest market that, you know, they were, yeah, they were the role, they were the role model for the rest of the league. Uh, the money, the money backers out of the six franchises were Philadelphia and Maryland. And it was funny that before the league folded in 76, the owners from Philadelphia and from Maryland was going to finance the entire league and people frowned on that. And that's part of the reason why the league folded in 76. Well, but Dave's skipping ahead a little bit because when he says that, it brings up a point I wanted to make. Again, when you're talking about whether the wings were the model to follow, the irony is let's not overstate the Flyers' involvement, okay? The league approached Snyder because he essentially owned the spectrum. He said, no, I I don't want to bother. I don't want another iron in the fire. He got Tepper involved. Tepper was pretty much freestanding as opposed to, you know, the Toronto – had the backing of the Smites and and, uh, and Syracuse had the Knox. I forget which NHL teams were backing which, but um, I think it was actually Norris, I guess, had Syracuse. But anyway, um, it was Tepper on his own, and and he and he while it was successful, he was kind of undercapitalized. What uh, when, when Dave talks about money, it was the second year, uh, a gentleman named uh, Eugene Fitz Dixon um, bought the Wings, and he had lots of money. Um, and, and so now, uh, but he, but he was a total outsider. He had no, he wasn't a hockey guy. He loved sports, but yeah, he, he was, he was an outsider at that point. But now you had the wings marketing vision backed by serious capital and it, it continued to be successful. Maryland, which was the other really successful team in the league also didn't have a direct NHL connection. The, the, uh, the capitals, had only just started, but the, the, the Capitals owners were not involved, if I recall correctly, with the Arrows. But the guy who ran the Arrows, who owned the Arrows, was also well-heeled. And they were in a position in 76 when they realized Philadelphia and Maryland's doing really well. Montreal is doing well, but its owners are kind of losing interest. Quebec only came the year before because they, they relocated from Syracuse. Uh, they got slow growth, but they won a title, so there's some momentum there. And we and Boston, Long Island, they're struggling. But yeah, you had the two owners, you had Dixon and the owner out of um, uh, out of Maryland, saying, "Look, we'll just bankroll the whole league. We'll cover all these other franchises." And today, you're thinking, "Oh, great idea!" It happens all the time. Indeed, that concept was used when they restarted professional box across in '87. But as Dave said at the time. That was seen as kind of ooh, that, well, that's squirrely. That's we can't have that because then there'll be insider trading and stuff like that. But they still might have gone along with it, except remember I said earlier about it was logistics to kill the league more than finances. The problem was they needed to, in order to be viable, they had to have six teams, and Montreal was not going to be available because the uh, the forum was being used for the '76 Summer Olympics, and. Maybe they could have gotten around that. There are other arenas in Montreal, but it turns out Boston was also on the shelf because Boston Gardens was being renovated that summer. That's what wound up killing it. But um, you know, but the point I wanted to make 
again, the, the irony was, although it was supposed to be little brother of hockey, backed by hockey, that was, that was the original model that got it off the ground. The two most successful teams, and indeed the success you saw later with the later incarnation, was because non-hockey people uh, had different ideas, and, 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 and those ideas worked more than just simply saying, hey, come watch hockey on the boards. So it, it's, uh, and at least someone was paying attention because, again, in 87, uh, when, it, when, it was, when, when the concept was brought back, um, I dare say the, the Klein and, and Fritz and Klein were looking more at what the Wings had done a lot more than what the Syracuse Stingers or Toronto Tomahawks had done. So, just, so, so I keep hearing this sort of theme that uh, if only the logistics and uh, a little bit more, maybe more time, it could have uh, continued to, to root. And it, it does seem like 76 was sort of a confluence of issues. I mean, look, if two of your major arenas uh, and the franchises that sit in them are going to be out of uh, pocket for uh, the summertime, well, that's obviously, that's obviously a challenge if you can't sort of quickly find another facility. Um, but I, I guess I'm wondering, sort of give me a sense of like how relatively successful uh, these teams were. Let's say at the gate, uh, it doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of, of media, but then again, six markets, you were mentioning two of them kind of had some support, certainly Philadelphia in particular. Um, I, I'm assuming that these were not sellouts per se, but I mean, but they weren't anemic either in terms of attendance and all that, right? Or was it somewhere in between or was it, uh, Philadelphia kind of, you know, really kind of showing it and the rest of them kind of struggling to sort of keep up. Give me a sense of like how relatively popular this was and, and why people in terms of looking back say that, you know, it, it, it could have actually gone better and further post 75, 76. Um, it sounds like there was more than the seeds of, of possible success longer term. Philadelphia averaged close to 10,000 a game their first year, and they averaged close to 9,000 their second year. Montreal, on average, eight to 9,000 a game. Maryland, 75 to 8,000 a game. They were pretty successful when you consider everything else that's going on in the summer as far as being at the shore, being at a baseball game, being, you know. Toronto, Rochester, and Syracuse, they were a little bit different. Toronto was owned by Bruce Norris at the time, who took over the uh, Rochester franchise, moved them to Long Island in 75. I have stats that showed that towards the end of the season, even though Toronto played 500 lacrosse, they were averaging not even 1,000 a game. For the championship series, Rochester, for the final game six when they won it all in 74, there was only 2,100 people at the, in the building. Uh, Syracuse, they started losing 10 straight, went through a carousel of coaches before Mito Martinello came in and righted the ship there. Uh, they averaged a little over 2,000 a game but losing 10 straight to begin the season didn't help matters in a 40-game season. Uh, Syracuse moved to Quebec. Quebec embraced the Caribou. Uh, they won the championship in 75. Uh, talking with Pat Differ, the Colisee house could set 11,000 people, and they were 
you know, standing room only and 13,000, 14,000, a crowd at some games, uh, Long Island, with the success that Long Island had in Rochester winning it in 74, they were the first place team in 75, and Norris couldn't make it work in 75 in Long Island. Their crowds were two, 3,000 a game in the, in the Coliseum. And Boston, they averaged five, 6,000 a game. They did really well in Boston. And Tad Potter, he owned, he owned Rochester. Him and Norris flipped the script where Tad took over the Toronto team, moved them to Boston. He was originally thinking about moving them to Pittsburgh because he owned the Penguins at the time. And he got involved with some Boston investors and moved them to the Boston Garden instead. So it, it, it was like a split. It was like split down the middle. You had three teams that really did well, and then you had three teams that were struggling at the gate. And, and, they, and, and when, when he mentions Pittsburgh, and it goes to one of the questions you were asking, Tim. You, as the sport was doing really well where it was doing well, but uh, but one of those teams was going to be on the shelf, Montreal, um, and Boston. Those numbers are respectable, and these guys weren't being paid a whole lot of money. But because your tal- your your uh, player base was all Canadian, um, there were extra overhead as far as housing and things like that. In, in any other league, they would have said, okay, let's continue to relocate. Indeed, as the NLL did. They moved from Toronto, they moved from Syracuse to, in one case, a slightly better uh, location. Well, Quebec, slightly better location. Boston, slightly better location. Long Island, not so much. So you figure, okay, well, Montreal's on the shelf. We'll put them on hiatus. Boston, let's move teams around. The NLL didn't really have that luxury because while notwithstanding the great success of Philadelphia, you couldn't take the chance that, oh, let's put this sport in, say, Atlanta, and people embrace it right away. The sad irony was there were cities that would have happily embraced professional box across like that uh, in a heartbeat. Vancouver, um, uh, you know, West Coast cities, because they've had, they already had the, tra- the tradition. But you know, one of the things that boomed the 1968 league and it's silly to think about in the year of jet travel, but it was a reality, was the costs of coast-to-coast travel were, were prohibitive. And so, uh, and, and indeed, after the success of the NLL in 74, there was a brief attempt to form a West Coast Professional League um, by Dan Snyder, who felt he had been cheated out of his opportunity to, you know, he thought he, this, he helped grow this and he wasn't part of NLL. Well, what am I going to do? He tried to exploit the fact that there was a big box across base on the West Coast, and it would have been a separate league. Then again, they wouldn't have been doing coast-to-coast travel. NLL was in that same position. So, go, oh, we need teams. We can't operate. We need at least six. We have two on the shelf. Where do we find them? Uh, they, they could have gone west, but I guess the uh, the two angels uh, in Maryland and Philadelphia, they may have been willing to bankroll an East Coast league. They weren't willing to bankroll a coast-to-coast league. Yeah, it's, and, interesting. it's interesting. Yeah. You, almost, you almost kind of, in a strange way, almost uh, wish for somebody like a Gary Davidson or a uh, Dennis Murphy to kind of uh, pick this uh, sport and this uh, thing to kind of uh, help hustle, shall we say, the franchise thing, right? Which, But, you know, that's yeah. as we've learned, that that can also itself be a house of cards. Let me, let me ask you this. So where do these players come from? Right, as we sort of circle back here, maybe sort of where we started, uh, where are the who are these players? Right, I, I know Bruce Arena is probably the most famous, I guess, 
uh, a player of that era, who obviously well-known in, in soccer circles, of course, and his career uh, still ongoing. Uh, but, uh, you know, he was a lacrosse player in this league. Where are these players coming from? Is it college? Is it, you know, you mentioned Canada. Uh, and, and give me a sense of, you know, why they're doing it, because it's certainly not for, the, uh, for big bucks. I guess that one's for Mig. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, this is right in your wheelhouse. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> yeah, like how uh, recruited as well. Like uh, how do they find out about this thing and why try it? Well, from the National Lacrosse Association in 68 to the first attempt at the National Lacrosse League in 72, it was basically Canada East and West. Uh the majority of the players in the first year came from Eastern Canada. There was a few from Western Canada. You had the uh, First Nations, and you had a smidgen of American field lacrosse players that wanted to give it a go. The uh, Canadian Western player influence really came to be in 75, and it was basically, you know, Ontario, British Columbia, the uh, – Native Americans, and uh, they just uh, took a liking to what was going on, and they seen an opportunity, and they took a chance. Now, the difference between 74 and 75 from talking to the different players through the interviews is like in 74, wherever they were situated, Peterborough, Oshawa, Toronto, whatever, they were flown in. There was, you know, there was money allocated. All six teams had allocated money to fly players in for different, you know, for the games and whatnot and the hotels and the whole nine yards. In 75, especially in Philadelphia, they were uh, given the opportunity either you can stay where you are and not play or move to the Philadelphia area and continue. And, you know, that was the choice that of a lot of, a lot of the players had in 75, you know, like if you wanted to play, you had to, you know, give up your job and you had to, you know, move from your home and move your family and whatnot. And that, you know, that was basically what was uh, happening in 75, in Philadelphia at least. And I'm sure it happened in Maryland and Boston and whatnot. Interesting. So, this, so a lot of this was importation, if you will, of of players and, uh, and I guess the costs associated. It almost feels like they're a uh, – it's like a hired summer help, if you will, like at a resort. Uh, to a point. To a point. But yeah, maybe without the free meals, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, like they're saying, but it, and again, you had Bishop. Uh, at that point, Bishop had a club team called the Windsor Warlocks, uh, who uh, he, he tried to professionalize in the 72 version. So he's coaching in um, Toronto. He's basically bringing his Warlocks there. Philadelphia was coached by Bobby Allen, who was a legend out of Peterborough. The Peterborough Lakers were a storied uh, box team. They won the 1969 professional, semi-professional championship. Uh, they did great teams for a number of years. The Wings were largely Peterborough players. Um, Morley Kells, he had his Brantford Warriors club. It was the, um, it was the evolution of his original Maple Leafs team. He basically installed that in uh, in the uh, sort of split between Rochester and Syracuse. So yeah, it, it's all Canadian, but it wasn't just Canadian. It was also it was almost like the, the United Soccer Association is uh, sixty seven. It, it's like it's not only it's not just Canadian. We're basically taking teams and installing them in other cities 
and and uh, and, and and now now you're playing as Syracuse. You know, it wasn't quite as clean as that. You know, you had great players like Cy Coombs who had been with Peterborough. Whatever. He landed in, in, in Maryland. I mean, some of the talent had to be spread. But as Dave said, in 74, it was largely East uh, because, again, it was a shorter commute, um, uh, you know, money issues. And everyone would – I guess there was some amount of skepticism about, oh, here we go again. Tried this in 72. They tried it in 68. Didn't work. Here we go again. When it did work – in 75, that's when you saw all the West Coast guys like Al Lethwaite and all willing to come on. And, uh, and again, it was, it was uh, while there were no West Coast teams, the West Coast players were coming. And, again, and there were rumblings about a West Coast league. I mean, this, you know, as opposed to volleyball, team tennis, as opposed to the more uh, faddish, for want of a better way to phrase the things, professional lacrosse, box lacrosse in particular, really did resonate across the board. Again, even with the field players, you mentioned Bruce Arena, um, oh, was Sheffield, was it Sheffield, uh, Dave, John Sheffield? John had Sheffield. A, yeah. It had a, you know, some of the field players who had, who had gone to college at like Cornell in the upper New York, where they, where there was some cross pollination with the box game. They were happy to get on board. And, you know, Arena says quite plainly in his book, he, he had his brothers, he would have been a pro lacrosse player. Soccer didn't mean that much to him. He loved the cross. He wanted to stay with the cross. He was all in. 76, he was he was ready to go. The Wings had, you know, 7,500 season tickets sold or whatever. Um, again, this was not a, this was not like the WFL, a league that was struggling from year to year to to get to the starting line. Um, they, they, they had momentum. It, it, it was really connecting with people. It was really growing. And just the timing couldn't be worse. And we haven't even mentioned the economy. Which was starting to take a dump, um, which which made the, the tax loss benefit of owning these startup teams uh, a lot less attractive. I mean, it really was the perfect storm of bad luck, uh, and it's unfortunate because you know while we have the current version of the NLL and it can reach all the way back to '87, which is nice. I mean, heck, MLS can't say that. Uh, it, it would it would be great if we could go all the way back to '74, and, and and you know and and so. And, and the John Grants would be remembered by the current team because it's part of the current team's history. You know, Tim, you and I have talked about how the breaks, you know, like pro soccer's history has got a problem because it's tough to get excited about Archie Stark because you mentioned Bethlehem Steel and he's got, that's got no connection with anything going on today. As opposed to if you talk about Eddie Shore, it's like, oh, Boston Bruins, I know them. You know, it'd be great if the original 70, uh, 74 t- league had continued because even though I'm sure the bolts would have moved somewhere else and Quebec probably wouldn't have stayed in Quebec, just like we've seen in hockey, there would have been that continuity that when you're talking about Johnny, I mean, these, when you're talking about the history of box lacrosse, you know, the, the people today, you know, they're going to a wings game. They're going to a New York Riptide game. Johnny Davis, John Grant, John Grant Sr. is more than just John Grant Jr.'s dad. Carm Collins, Wayne Platt, Larry Luke, Paul Suggett, Rick Dudley. I mean, these were giants in the game, and and they don't get their due through through no fault of their own, simply because the league they starred in, uh, through no fault of its own, didn't get the chance to survive. And and that's that's unfortunate, but that's what, going back to the start of all this, when Dave said, hey, I want to do, I want to capture these oral histories and I want to sort of gather all the good extant footage and have it in one place because these people need to be remembered. This league needs to be remembered because, you know, Canada doesn't want to remember it because they don't like professional sports. It's only fairly recently 
that to their credit, the Canadian Hall has said, hey, we have to start paying more attention to this league. It was a seismic event in the development of this sport. We need, and, and they're doing a much better job. But, you know, previously, like a lot of professionals, like, like their view towards a lot of professional sports, they didn't care. Uh, you know, America doesn't care because it's box. They're slowly coming around to it. But the story needs to be told. The story needs to be remembered while you can still get the people who were there to tell the story. That's what this film is ultimately about. And that's what they've captured to a T. They did an outstanding job. I'm so proud to have been a part of this because this is, it's not just, an, it's not just entertainment, although it's very entertaining. This is history. It's captured. It's there forever. And it's not going to be forgotten. And that's the important part. Right, two more questions as we, as we round out here. Um, uh, one kind of specific and the other kind of more general. Um, so I, I, we kind of danced around it, but uh, in the player pool, there were also uh, NHL hockey players too, right? And I, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, in the mixture here, right? and I'm assuming that there's some kind of overlap, large or small or, or whatever, uh, between uh, NHL players and either their desire to keep their skills up or just the fact that it's there's a commonality in some respects in terms of tactics and uh, team size and you know goal to goal and action and stuff. So was that a thing or was that more of an outlier, this sort of uh, hockey player overlap, if you will, into the uh, the player base? I want to say that the only player that I'm aware of, and Steve can correct me, that overlapped from the NHL to the NOL was Rick Dudley. Uh, Dudley played with the Sabres back in 74-75. Now, you're just trolling me now, right? Well. You forgot Doug Favelle. Well, Favelle, right. <laughs> and that's, Duffy, an, that's, that's an inside <clears throat> joke between me and Dave. Um, and, uh, but but uh, Dudley, he played more in 74. He, he really didn't play in 75 because of the uh, Sabres were, you know, frowning on the fact that, hey, you know, <laughs> he's going it. He played with Rochester in 74, and he only played 28 games in 74. Uh, not due to the fact that he was a saber, but due to the fact that he was suspended a lot. <laughs> he, he, uh, he was a, he was a great goal scorer. He, he was he was Guy Lafleur and Dave Schultz in a single package for you hockey fans. Yeah, he, he was a tremendous goal scorer, but also had a, a hair trigger temper and would drop the gloves at, at the slightest provocation. Oh, perfect, for the, for, perfect for the violence part you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was a perfect player. No, but yeah. the, but 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 I think it, it's not. There, there would have been more, but for the reasons Dave's talking about. A lot of the NHL teams didn't want to release their players to play in a, a summer game that was fairly violent, you know. Uh, but no, in Canada. You played hockey in the winter. You played lacrosse in the summer. So, yeah, you have to, uh, because yeah, you're all going to the same. Yeah, you're, you're yeah, you're all go, you're you're all going to the same rink anyway. Just in the summer, there was no water on it, so there was plenty of cross pollination. And in, in the '68 league was counting on that. Favelle did play until the Flyers said ah, no more. Jerry Cheevers, a great goaltender, who also happened to be a great field uh, box. I'm sorry, box lacrosse forward. He wanted to play. Uh, Ken Hodge, another Bruin, wanted to play. Uh, Paul Smear, who wound up being a WHA star, he did play. John Ferguson wanted to play, but the but the hockey teams were always eh, they were always touchy about it. Toronto let Favelle play uh, because it was Philadelphia, and and he was he was only the goalie. How could you get hurt, right? Although he's a field player in lacrosse, Dudley the first year was allowed to play because basically 
uh, the Rochester Griffins took out an insurance policy. Um, um, and it was one other hockey player, Duffy McCarthy. He was a professional hockey player. Uh, he was in the Red Wings system, was playing in Europe. Uh, but yeah, but he played because, I guess, again, less of a risk because he's a minor leaguer. But there would have been more um, but because it was so – it was so ingrained. I mean, uh, in the film, it's mentioned Rick McLeish, who was a Flyers star. You know, if he had his druthers, he probably would have just switched uniforms, grabbed the stick and played for the wings because he was a player out of Peterborough. He knew all those guys. He played for Bobby Allen. Um, but it, it was, um, you know, for the, I guess for the same reasons, you don't see a lot of Deion Sanders notwithstanding. You don't see a whole lot of baseball, football, because uh, it's, it, the, the, the sport uh, players have become too valuable an asset to risk getting hurt. Well, we're also too um, specialized now today too, right? So, well, I mean, well, indeed, which w- would even apply to the sport of lacrosse. I mean, you hear it mentioned in the film, uh, um, uh, Johnny Davis laments that while it's still a great game, uh, the fact that players don't have to play both sides of the ball the way he, he had to, um, it sort of takes a little way. But yeah. Specialization. Absolutely. All right. So, so here's the, here's the sort of wind up question then. So given the seeds of success and we, we obviously saw some the roots and the, uh, the shoots of 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 uh, uh, of of success, right? It's Philadelphia being sort of prime among it, but obviously other 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 things that that were more positive than negative, so to speak. Um, why then, when it did it did not return in '76? Why did it take a decade plus for pro lacrosse in the indoor version, the box lo- lo- version, to even come back into the, 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 the realm of possibility with certain folks. I and mean, we were talking about 1987 when the Eagle League sort of came uh, back and sort of resurrected this idea. Frankly, I think for a lot of uh, folks, it was, it was completely brand new and, and ignorant of what had transpired here in these two years in the 70s. Why did it take so long, given the more than hints of possible success, if only, um, and maybe it was the economy. Was it too many other competitional competitions? There have been a word sports competition. Uh, just what, why do you think it took so long for the idea to be, shall we say rediscovered? I'll, I'll start with the macro view and, and they could, they could do you know, like the local view. I think, I think it was the economy. I think at first, uh, and, and you know, we've seen this, I mean, the NBA, was on was was teetering when you get to the uh, uh when you when you go from 76 to say 81 or so um even with the merger even with the aba merger it is struggling to survive um you know hockey uh was also struggling um with the, the, between the, the war with the world hockey association and the nhl was taking its toll but you know, the, the, but because hockey was a niche sport, it was going to survive in its markets. It may never get a TV deal, but it would survive in its markets at least. Basketball was struggling. It, it just it wasn't a good time for indoor wintertime sports. Then when the fog starts to lift a little bit, indoor soccer leapt into that niche before anyone else could. And it made sense because outdoor seemed to be growing Again, and, and it, it grew for the same reason. The arena owners were like, okay, things are getting a little better. We need to fill these dates. The ice capades only handle so much. Indoor soccer jumped in because it looked, it looked like the next big thing. But from there, it's not that big. I mean, that's 78, 79. From there, it's not that 
long stretch between that and box across coming back when you remember, and that's what Dave's going to talk about, that you know, while Eagle League started in 87, the seeds started two years earlier, right? With, yeah. With the Super Series. Yeah. The, uh, before, before Chris, yeah, Chris and Russ started the Eagle League, they promoted what was called the Super Series back in 85. And it was a series of 11 games between basically the best Canadian box players from, and it was the majority were from Ontario. John Grant played with them. Uh, Jimmy Watson from Philadelphia played also. And again, then they fielded a team for, of American field lacrosse players, which in the first couple years of the Eagle League going into the MILL, it was predominantly it was dominated by American field players trying to learn the box game. They brought John Grant back for the first year to promote the league in Philadelphia. I mean, you had Philadelphia, New Jersey, Baltimore, and Washington, and uh, the Super Series was played in Philadelphia. They went to they played in Philadelphia twice to near sellout crowds and uh, where the other locations were, I, I've got the list somewhere. It's, you yeah, know. I mean, they, they, I could say they, they, they touched on a lot of the old NLL cities. They went to Syracuse, they went to Rochester. They were testing to see whether the support was still there. And they found out they were reminded what NLL, NLL the original version had learned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Rochester and Syracuse, they're not box lacrosse hotbeds, but Maryland drew, Philadelphia drew, you know, New Jersey. I mean, it's so yeah, and they had great success with it. And a couple years later, the Eagle League was formed, and now we have the National Lacrosse League, and the rest is history. But no, yeah, but, so so yeah, so the so I was going to say yeah, so the gap. One, if you think about it, it, wasn't that great a gap? But but and most of the gap, I would argue, was was chewed up by the fact the economy was awful, and indeed, even the established winter sports were struggling. So, I mean, I don't think you're going to get anyone interested at that point in, in trying to bring something new back. But when the fog had lifted and it looked like, hey, you know, the economy's better, it's it's time, you know, people are ready for sports again. Uh, although that's, that's not really the way to phrase it, but now's the time to see if they're ready for sports again. You know, you saw lacrosse came back in a shot. You didn't see another attempt at pro volleyball. You didn't see, I mean, world team tennis never really left, but the current version just shouldn't even count. It's not really a league. I'm sorry. Um, but when someone say, well, okay, it's time to fill seats in the wintertime again, <clears throat> they went right back to lacrosse. So I, I, I think that, sh- that, that shows that, yeah, people remember that the, the, the original NLL really was pretty successful. Didn't die because the sport died or the sport didn't sell. And, and it, 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 when, when you realize you had to get indoor soccer out of the way, uh, the next real opportunity to do it, it was taken. It didn't sit on the shelf for too long. That's yeah, my it's argument. Anyway. Interesting too. Obviously, the economics changed, and, and television right itself had changed. Yeah. Right. So there's the ability to kind of do the cable thing, and, and, and yeah, the, the need for the need for content. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I guess uh, I guess sort of the, the sort of wrap up to that uh, last question then is, um, and we've had Russ Klein on the show. We've uh, we've obviously discussed a little bit of uh, with you guys uh, prior. Um, but th- there, and maybe this sort of wraps it up into a bow and a, and a big question mark going forward is, um, when that sort of congealed and sort of came back in the late eighties, 
there was no embrace, recognition, memory, either uh, consciously or not, of this uh, mid-70s uh, shot at Boxlow or even the late 60s uh, version of such. Um, is that by design? Is that a, uh, a matter of, you know, d- don't pay attention to the, the issues and the idiosyncrasies of maybe what came in the past and or um, does it over time now that the league uh, has uh, stuck around for such a long period of time, um, does it, as it gets older and wiser, uh, remind people or uh, chafe at them perhaps to go back and reminisce and or incorporate and or remember and or understand what came before it? I guess the question there is, why not a, a memory of this league when the 80s and 90s rolled around? And perhaps then why maybe now does it become more interesting and more is it just a matter of time and people sort of recognizing that there are things that came before, especially as this league continues to grow? I think in the, in the Eagle League's case, there, notwithstanding the fact they named one of their teams foot off your wings and it was just a brilliant move, um, there was, uh, because again, that was formed by two people that no knowledge of the sport of lacrosse field or box at all. And they thought, when they did their studies, um, they thought that the quote-unquote violent elements of the National Lacrosse League was a hindrance. Um, So as Dave pointed out, they set out to establish uh, what they called indoor lacrosse. I mean, tellingly, they didn't call it box lacrosse. They called it indoor lacrosse, and they changed the number of rules to take the more violent elements out because they initially really wanted to make it a league for the American field player. Um, Whether again, that was just practical because it's a lot cheaper to have guys work their day jobs and play on weekends when they're in Baltimore, as opposed to flying someone down from Peterborough. But I think initially, at least the Eagle league uh, wanted to distance itself from the NLL because they thought the violent elements were, were not a good selling point, at least not in 1987. Um, as they've evolved away from that and have now basically become box lacrosse, why they don't embrace uh, what came before, uh, why don't any of these leagues do this? You and I could have another, we could kill another hour and a half talking about how MLS utterly dropped the ball, uh, notwithstanding what some of the West Coast teams did. That's my feeling. What do you think, Dave? For today's leg, to, uh, I mean, it, it's hard to ignore what happened in 74 75 because of what we're doing. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, the Wings, again, hosted the 30th reunion in 2004. But it's like, it, you know, when I talk to the guys that played in the old league, it bothers them to no end that, you know, why, don't, why, why doesn't the present league pay any attention to us? Because they, as again, they were the ones that brought the sport of box lacrosse to the United States and, you know, North America, they were the forefathers of it all. And maybe somehow, some way through the uh, documentary that was produced, it'll open more eyes to what they did. The younger generation are just 
catching on to the history of that leg. Uh, people that are our age know about it, completely support what they've done. And it's, you know, time, time will tell. Uh, the documentary has gotten good reviews. It's gotten quite a few views. And um, hopefully this opens some eyes up to exactly what they brought to the table and what they gave us. I mean, if it wasn't for these these gentlemen that made the sacrifice back then, I didn't think you would have what you have today. Okay, thank you to Dave, thank you to Steve, and uh, we appreciate uh, all the learnings about the National Lacrosse League, and then some, and uh, let's continue the the investigation with uh, some places to follow and uh, learn more. Two for the show is the name of the film. It is available now on YouTube. Uh, You can also find Two for the Show, the documentary, at the boys' website at crosscheck.com. That's crosscheck, all one word. Uh, crosscheck.com. Don't forget the E in cross, crosscheck.com. On Instagram, you can follow them at crosscheck.lacrosse. Crosscheck.lacrosse, that's on Instagram. On Twitter, you can follow them at crosscheckmag, at crosscheckmag. Let's see, Steve's uh, uh, lacrosse gnome diploma on uh, on Twitter. Uh, Yes, he tweets on all kinds of other stuff like soccer and basketball and even tennis and all kinds of other old sports. But when it, when it comes to lacrosse, the exclusive Twitter handle for Steve Holroyd is LaxMaven, at LaxMaven, M-A-V-N. No E. Don't ask why. Uh, and uh, let's see. I think uh, that's pretty... Oh, yeah. While you're on YouTube, by the way, uh, do an extra search for National Lacrosse League 1974. You will likely find uh, a real treasure uh, it was produced by NFL Films back in the day, 1974, and narrated by the great legendary voice of NFL Films, John Facenda, the voice of God. Uh, you uh, have heard a clip of it in our previous episode with the boys, an uh, episode 92. We used a, a nice hefty clip from it, but it's it's awesome. And it's, uh, it's everything you expect in NFL Films production from um, uh, Messrs. Ed and Steve Sable. Uh, but applied to uh, this uh, curious, at the time, new, brash sport called box lacrosse. It's great. It's fantastic and uh, worth uh, the uh, 20 minutes of that uh, in and of itself. Uh, while you're online, make sure you bookmark and visit early and often our website, too. Why don't you? At goodseatsstillavailable.com. All of our episodes to date and to come will be found there. Perhaps if you're, uh, your podcast feed has uh, uh, experienced a glitch or you've... Uh, just stumbled across this uh, this little show and you're a little reluctant to add it to your feeds, well, by golly, there it is. Every single episode's all searchable. Uh, you can stream them, you can share them, do whatever you'd like, download them. Uh, and uh, also, too, in all the descriptions of the shows there on the website, uh, you can uh, one-click your way to uh, various places to purchase the various books and items featured uh, in those episodes. Uh, and, of course, when you do that, uh, we get a couple of uh, pennies or nickels, occasionally a dime or two of love uh, in the, in reference by doing so. So we appreciate you doing that uh, as well. Um, and while you're there, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. 
Um, what else? You can uh, also send us an email if you'd like. And that's uh, at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You want to follow us on social media? Well, okay. Uh, Facebook, there's a little page devoted to us there. Just to search up Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on uh, Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, of course, you will find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, what else? Our pal Jerry Payne has come through once again. Uh, and uh, we appreciate uh, his uh, fine editorial efforts this week. Uh, Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence. Uh, thank you, kind sir, as always. And thank you, kind ladies and gentlemen, for uh, your listenership, uh, your notes, and your encouragement. Please stay safe, uh, stay kind to everyone, and uh, hang in there. It's going to be... Um, I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we're in store for the next couple of months, but uh, you know, um, we, we're all proverbially in it together. I know it sounds trite, but uh, it is very true. Um, please, uh, you know, hang in there and um, be there for each other. Why don't you? All right, we'll see you hopefully next week. And uh, again, thank you tremendously for listening. And uh, we'll take care. You'll take care. I'm sure you will, uh, as I will too. And um, until next week, bye bye.